welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. So here we are, week four in our series, Unto Us, as we have walked through Isaiah 9, verse 6. And, and we've talked through so many things. The first thing we said was that Jesus had to be given, right? He had to be born and he had to be given. It shows his humanity and his deity in that, that that he was born as a man and then given unto us from God the Father, right? And so we talked about the need for him to be born and to be given. And then we've walked through week by week of the different things that he he shall be called, uh, you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God. And we've walked through these things and discussing how important each name is. And, we, and Lauren made a great statement in the week that she preached that, that God would not give him a name that he didn't deserve. He didn't give him a name that he wouldn't live up to. And that was a a powerful moment in understanding that each name given by God to the Son is vital in understanding who he is in his place as uh, the the given one, Emmanuel, God with us, right? So today, and it's not nighttime yet, it's a long ways from nighttime. So today, I don't know where nighttime came from. Today, we're going to keep walking through this and we're going to talk about Jesus, everlasting father. Now, I'm a huge sports fan. I love sports and, and I love most all sports that, that there are. And in round uh, playoff time in different sports, Lauren and I take our fandom to another level. And it doesn't matter what the teams are, we are all in and watching it. So the NFL is coming up on, on the playoffs. And this year, it looks like the Cowboys will be in the playoffs. Uh, that's a good thing. And what's even better is that the Giants won't be. And so that is a, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I was, that was for George and Marilyn Diaz right there, our, our, our beloved New Yorkers, right? We got to... Th- any jab you can get, you got to throw it, right? That's where it is. So, so we, we're, we're coming up on the playoffs, which means even after the Cowboys get beaten the first game, we're going to keep watching, right? Uh, we're going to keep watching. Listen, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Cowboys. I'm also a realist, right? I'm also... <laughs> Uh, aware of history. It's so, but we, we love sports and it doesn't matter what it is. When it comes to basketball playoffs, Lauren and I, I don't know that we miss a game during the basketball playoffs. And, and that means we end up just watching a lot of Golden State because they get all of the airtime uh, during the basketball playoffs. But, you know, so we see all of this stuff and we love it. Now, here's what's great about sports. One of the things I love is that uh, it allows for individuals to excel, right, within the team mindset. And, and if you really excel in a sport, if you really do well in a season, you'll get... You you'll get voted or selected for that particular sports all-star game, right? And that's an accolade and an honor. And the funny thing about baseball is you only have to be good for half a season to make the all-star game. And what you do after that doesn't matter. You were an all-star that year, right? It's so, that's a funny one to me. I don't get it, but it's uh, kind of not, not necessarily backwards. It's just like halfway backwards. And like if you just finish and then determine he was good. But if you do that repeatedly in your career, you you can be an all-star over and over and over. Eventually, you make the Hall of Fame, right? But then there are those few that transcend even their own sport, and they go to another level, and they are called the greatest of all time, or affectionately called the GOAT, which is an acronym for greatest of all time, if y'all didn't put that together just then. Oh, that's why they call them that. It's one of those moments, right? The GOAT. 
Now, I grew up in, in a time period where I had the privilege of being able to watch Michael Jordan play basketball. It was absolutely remarkable. And I don't know that there was ever a game that I watched that I didn't go, that was all right. I mean, you know what I mean? Like every game was, was always good. He always excelled. He was always, which is partly why he is called the GOAT, the greatest of all time. In every sport, they have someone that is called the greatest of all time. We're also a big soccer family in our house. And so for many people, they say Pele is the greatest soccer player of all time. And this crazy, this crazy Brazilian that has the, all the moves and abilities. And, and so many of the players today are just trying to mimic the moves that he created and the things that he could do with the ball, right? It's remarkable. And then you go to other sports. We have, we have football and Tom Brady is now often referred to as the goat. Is Tom Brady the goat? And, and the, the, the debate, the thing about every one of these is, you know, is Jack Nicklaus the goat in golf? Is he the greatest golfer of all time? But what makes this always a unique debate is that there is always something to debate. There's always somebody else. I've heard people say, well, Michael Jordan wasn't the greatest. Look at what Will Chamberlain did. And, and he wasn't in the NBA the whole time. And you go all this stuff and you back and forth with all these different things. But, but maybe Jack wasn't the greatest golfer of all time. Look at what Tiger has done. He has more wins, but not as many majors. But Tiger holds most of the scoring records in the major. I'm also a big golf fan. I don't know if you know that. Like I'm a, I, I will nerd out on some golf. It's really, it's sad, right? But, but so you have this whole debate and it goes back and forth. Is Tom Brady the greatest quarterback in, in football or is it Joe Montana? Montana never lost a Super Bowl. And apparently Tom Brady is just choking them up left and right right now, right? Like he, he can't win a Super Bowl anymore. And so it's who is the greatest. That is what, what makes sports so fun is that it's always this debatable thing and trying to find out who is the greatest. And what I think is so cool is that when we read the words of Isaiah and he says that Jesus is our everlasting father, that's like a statement of saying he is the father of all fathers or he's the goat. He's the greatest of all time the greatest father that ever was. It's, it's synonymous with King of Kings, Lord of Lords, everlasting father, the father of fathers. So today, as we walk through this, all of that build up to get to talking about someone who is incomparable, somebody who cannot be debated, somebody who, who can't be compared to anybody else or, 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 or put on the same plane or same playing field as anybody else, and that is Jesus. As we talk through this verse and we say unto us was given the everlasting father now the phrase everlasting father here's what you have to understand it's not meant to be taking taken literally because in, think about it in, in the sense how could the son be the father right and when we look at the trinity there is two distinct persons there's really three distinct persons within this one god and that's kind of a hard concept sometimes for us to fully grasp and wrap our minds around and i don't know that any of us truly really do but when we look at it they are two distinct persons so the son is the son and the father is the father and, and he's not being born the son and the father at once right and so i know it's kind of crazy because you're like but it's the trinity yes they do combine. So we'll, we'll track with me. You have to understand the historical context of this verse. There are other verses that speak to the, the theological truths that are the Trinity. Okay. I'm not. So just in case anybody starts going, wait a minute, he's done, he doesn't believe in the Trinity. No, I do. And, and that's not what this is. So here, here, this verse, we have to understand the historical context of this verse. 
The language that Isaiah is using would have been synonymous with the language found in, in, in propaganda brought by kings. Kings would try to sell their, their kingdom. They would try to sell their rule in a sense and package it for people to grasp and take hold of and run with and say, I am essentially, I am the everlasting father. So we find the phrase father used often during this time period as a description for a king. In fact, if we read uh, just other historical writings, there's a Phoenician inscription between 850 and 800 BC, and, and it was the ruler uh, Kilamua, and he declares, to some I was a father, and to others I was a mother. And he's describing essentially his role as the leader of the country, as the leader of the nation. And so he's saying, listen, to some I acted as the father. I was the father figure to some. To others I fulfilled the role of the mother, the nurturing that they needed as the ruler. And he's saying this. And, and in another, uh, um, there was another ruler, and his name is a lot of fun. It's uh, Azatawada. That's his name. I didn't write it. It's just what it is. His mama wasn't very nice. Um, he boasts that the god Baal made him father and a mother. So we find that this type of language, and I need to slow down. I feel myself rushing, and I'm like, deep breath. We find that this type of language is used in, in, in typical rhetoric amongst propaganda within rulers and kingdoms. And so it's almost metaphorically used as everlasting father, right? Not that Jesus is not a part of the Trinity and that there's not a triune God. There is a triune God, but this isn't speaking to the Trinity theologically. This is actually speaking metaphorically of his role in who he is. He is the everlasting father, as in as a king would view himself as the father of his nation, so the, the word that is used for father is not Abba, which would be like daddy God, right? It's, it's, not, it's not the word Abba, it's the word Ab, which is just A-B in, in, if you look at it in the English spelling of it. It's just Ab. And, and that word basically is an open-ended father figure. It, it means the, the originator or the source, the originator or the source. And that is, that is the term that we have here. He is the everlasting source. And our big idea today is this, Jesus is our everlasting source. And when you put it in those terms and when you understand it in that realm, we're, we're talking about a king. We're talking about a king who is the ruler and is our everlasting source. It's so much greater, I think, when we have the full understanding of what was Isaiah saying? Who is he speaking to? And here he is, as he's, he's proclaiming and stating, these are words that you find. This is how you describe a king. That this is how, you, you know, you, this wonderful counselor would be the term used to describe a king. This, this mighty man, right, that we find this mighty God would be a term used to, to, describe, to describe a king within their propaganda and this everlasting father. And the word everlasting would have been common in, in terminology and usage, right? We find it even in, in modern language with phrases like long live the king or long live the queen or, or things of that nature with the understanding that there will one day be an end to that rule. There will one day be an end to that reign, but yet the phraseology is still used to, to try to bolster that idea of forever reign and, 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 and long live. The, but what we find here is that Isaiah is not speaking to a mortal person who will come and rule and die, but he is speaking about a man who will truly and fully fulfill the prophecy. So what does it mean that Jesus is our everlasting father? What does it mean when we look at it in those terms and the mindset of he is a king who is going to eternally reign? I think there's a few things when I start thinking about the idea of 
of Jesus being the everlasting father, I go, well, as a father, what are key elements to being a good dad, right? What are the key elements to being a good father? What are things that about a father that would make a king want to be synonymous or, or known as an everlasting father? And, and I think there's three things, and there's, there's several others, and we could go down a list for hours and hours, and I didn't want to do that to you today. We'll save that for another time. It's too close to Christmas. Um, so we'll, we'll walk through just a few things that I want to take hold of and say, these are elements that I hope to apply and uh, in, in live out. And, and, and Scott, I'm going to apologize to you in advance. I changed stuff this morning. And so at the very end of this, we'll just make it, we'll fill in our own blank. Okay. Uh, you sometimes you just got to be obedient in the moment and just say, all right, Lord, you speak, I'll follow. Right. That's where we are. So, uh, it just didn't sit right with me. You know, there's one of those moments where I had kind of written out this outline and I was like, ah, it's just not, it's not right. So we changed it. But at the very end. So let's talk through this. The first thing is this. He's our source of protection. He's our protector. He's our source of protection. As a father, as a king, they would often, you know, they would want to be seen as the protector of their people right? This powerful man, this powerful figure who has dominion and reign over all things around their country. They build these massive walls and it's, it's all a sign to their authority, but it's a sign of, I love my people and I will protect them. It's this strong statement of, I am the father of these people. I rule over them. I protect them. Jesus is our protector. Now I would say this as, as, as a guy, I'm usually a nice person, right? I like to think I'm a nice person, right? I'm pretty happy-go-lucky, uh, pretty easygoing. Something shifts and changes, though, if you mess with my wife or my children. I become a different person. I become a whole other person. My mind goes into the funniest thoughts, like, okay, 15 pounds of pressure breaks a knee, right? That's where my mind goes. Uh, you learned something new today. I mean, that, that's where I go. If I, I'm like, okay, I can collapse them if I just step sideways on their leg and their knee just buckles and they go down, right? I win. That's how I look at it. It's like, I mess with my wife, see what happens. You'll break your leg or I'll break it for you. One of the way, right? I'm not a big guy, so I got to know things like this, right? You know, that's, that's you got to have your way out. You know, that's kind of how it is. I become a different person. And I think many men, hopefully all of you who are married and have children have the same mentality of if you mess with the wrong person, I become a different person, right? And, and I think it's the same sense as a father, as the king is thinking, man, you mess with my country, you mess with my people, you mess with the wrong person. We'll be good to go. We can have trade agreements and all these different things. But the moment you try to step over and mess with my people, all of a sudden I go into protection mode and, and I'm not going to allow that, right? And I am going to, to fight full on if I have to, because the king is seen as the protector, the king is seen as a protector. In those days, the king would ride out into battle with the armies because they wanted to be seen going out to say, I am fighting for you. I am fighting with you, alongside you. Obviously, in today's world, it doesn't happen in that way any longer because they're going, we need to stay back and rule and, and govern and y'all go lay down your lives for the people, right? I don't, I don't know if that's right or wrong or where, if we just made a political statement or not. I'm not trying to. I really, really, truly am not trying to. But what we see is in that time, that was the way things played out. That was how it went. And so the kings wanted to be viewed in that father mindset as the protector of their people. 
Jesus is our protector. In fact, Isaiah twenty two twenty one. So further ahead, he says, I will put your robe on him, tie your belts around him and transfer your authority to him. He will become a protector of the residents of Jerusalem and of the people of Judah. That word protector, guess what it is? Av, the same word for father. And that's in the net translation. It's the same word for father understanding the metaphorical use of father in this context and in this scripture, we find that Jesus has been sent to be our protector, to fight for us, to go before us, to win battles. How many of you know that, that there is fighting going on around you that you're unaware of? That it, he goes before us, right? And, 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 and we don't realize it all the time, but, but he is protecting us. Isaiah 52 12 says, for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So now we're in football season and the Dallas Cowboys have a quarterback who, by my estimation, is a very good athlete. Uh, he's, he's, he's got some mobility. He can run well. He's a big guy. Um, maybe he holds on to the ball too long. I think we can all agree with that, right? I don't know why we're on this huge Cowboys kick today. I really am a Cowboys fan. I sound like a serious pessimist today, uh, but I am a Cowboys fan. Um, I mean, they beat the Giants this year, so that's good. Um, another one for George. But here's what I've learned about football. And I didn't play football, and so this is purely from an opinion standpoint without any real experience, all right? Is that, let's just be real. But I know this, that they, the quarterback, a lot of times, is only as good as his offensive line. He's only as good as his offensive line. Because the offensive line is there to protect him. That is their goal. At the end of the day, if you play left tackle or right tackle, your job is primarily and predominantly to protect the quarterback. That's why whenever he gets sacked, they're running over to pick him up as quick as possible because they're trying to stay on the good side, right? Please don't get me benched. Please don't get me benched. I'm just kidding. That's not what they say. But, but it's that mindset of when the ball is snapped, if there's no offensive line, that quarterback is dead meat. I don't care who you are, how fast you are, how great you are at throwing. If you don't have time to, to, to survey the field and find out that you can't do anything, if you're constantly under duress, it is crippling and it brings you down. So the offensive line's job is to create this wall of protection so that the quarterback can slide forward around and everything can filter around. See, God works in that same way. So think about this. You're like, wow, I just became a quarterback. You did, you did. It's always been my dream too. And you find that when there's this protection around you, you can step into that protection and everything can be going on around you and you are unaffected because Jesus is our protector. It says that he goes before us and the God of Israel will be your rear guard, meaning behind you as well. He is watching all angles and every aspect and every side of it, not allowing you to be attacked or brought down. Now, surely there's hardships that we endure, and that's so that we can grow and mature, becoming like Christ, right? right? James says, I counted all joy when I faced trials of many kinds, knowing that the persecution, you know, anyways, it's perfecting of the saints, right? It's that sanctification process. But, but God keeps us from things that he knows we can't bear or knows that we don't need to endure because he is our protector. He's our protector. When I was about three years old, I developed a serious fear of dogs. True story. We lived, on a little, lived in a little house on Misty Way in Garland, Texas. My dad had just started pastoring not long before that at the church that is now known North Place. At the time, it was called Saxe Assembly of God. 
And I was, I was young, like three years old. And I'm out in the front yard. My dad's doing yard work. And while he's working and doing this yard work, he's doing all these things. Next thing you know, I'm, I'm trying to mimic him, I'm sure. And I'm probably doing a terrible job like pulling weeds and just leaving it down in the grass. And he's going, thanks a lot. Uh, I can't get that one out. No, or whatever, you know. I'm trying to be like my father in that moment. Next thing you know, two Doberman pinchers from next door come running. I'm not making this a true story. Come running out of the house, barking. They knock me down. They get on top of me and they're growling and barking in my face. They never got the chance to bite me because of my father with whatever tool he had in his hand, ran them back to their house and they were scared from, for them in the immediate moment, chasing them back. He didn't hit them, he didn't do anything, but he told the owners of the dogs, he said, if it happens again, I will not be as nice. They were this close to biting my son in the face and I will not stand for it. And he's fuming mad. It's that same deal, you mess with a child, right? All of a sudden, those dogs got loose and, and he was after them. He's like, not doing this. Nope. Chases them back and lets them know. And craziest, coolest thing in the world is they took him seriously. And they took, <laughs> they took the dogs to obedience school. They never barked at us again. They never left their yard. They became the most well-behaved dogs on the street after that. And did my dad chase them because he hates dogs? No, he chased them because he loves his son. He chased them back because he loves his son. Jesus is our protector. And he chases it, the, the enemy away because he loves you. Does he hate the enemy? Yeah, well, there's that side of it too. But he loves you. He's our everlasting father. He's our protector. He's our protector. The second thing is this, is he's, he's our source of provision. A lot of times when you look at a kingdom, uh, it's, the prosperity of that time period is a great determining factor of of how great that king ruled uh, during that time period. And so that's why a lot of times if you look at Roman empires and things of that nature, you see uh, that they were building constantly. Same within in the Soviet Union. Every person who was leading wanted to build things constantly to give the impression and the appearance of great power, great wealth, great authority. And so we see all of these things being done and being built up for the appearance of or for the actual fact of prosperity. They wanted to look like they had everything, that they were the most powerful, the most wealthy rulers and so what we see here as, as this title of father is he is the provider. See, I get to experience a little bit of that now because we have two children and, and our boys uh, have needs, right? And we haven't started charging them rent yet. Um, and so for the time being, it's just me and my wife providing for them, right? So Lauren and I are just providing for them. Um, once they get to about 12, we'll start discussing room and board and whatnot. Um, we may hold off a little longer. I heard an amen. That's, uh, that's pretty good. Uh, that's fantastic. We may need to talk later, though, about that. So I get to experience a little bit of that of being the provider for them and the joy it is. And now I would have to say that I, I spoke a, a couple weeks ago and I, and I shared the, the story of when somebody paid Lauren and I's rent because we were in desperate need for three months. And I could go down the list of other stories when we were the recipients of the provision, but, but I would sound like an entitled millennial. And um, I am a millennial. I just hopefully am not entitled, right? That's, that's kind of the goal here. But there's been so many times and so many moments when I, I, I've noticed that, that God's provision has come out of nowhere, out of an unseen source and in, in, in completely unaware of the fact that, that somebody else was aware of my need. 
because God is our provider. God is our provider. Now, I, I have a father that, that loves to give. And, uh, and, and yes, he, is my, he was my protector at age three from the dogs. And I'm sure there were other moments when he was my protector as well. But, but he was also a provider for us. He worked very hard so that, that we could move up and, and have provision. And, and, and there's some great moments and great stories of him providing for Lauren and I in, in times when we were in need. And, and we've officially, I think, just about moved off the payroll, which is really great. And so uh, I'm just kidding. We have. Just to clarify. We've, we've made it. My little sister, on the other hand, uh, I hope she listens to this one just for that moment right there. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. How many of you know that, that God is aware of your needs? He sees them. And when we go before him with him and we humble ourselves and we say, God, I can't do it. I don't have the means. I don't have the ability. I don't have, I don't have the capacity to make this happen on my own. I need you. I need you. Paul writes to us, he says, and God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory. So I think one of the things we have to determine is how great is his glory? How vast is his glory? Because it's the riches of his glory, right? So when you read about the glory of God in the Old Testament, it's mentioned like 148 times in the Old Testament. And then it's mentioned even more, or not more so than that, but it's continued to be mentioned on through the New Testament. And we find that, that it, it, it is a greater amount of glory than we could ever possibly grasp or understand. Because essentially what we find is that it is used to describe his, his his appearance. It can be referencing his handiwork. In Revelation, we find that it is his glory fills the sanctuary. His glory will come from the new Jerusalem, and then it will serve as light to the city. His glory is vast. His glory is large. It's overwhelming. It's overpowering. The fact that his glory will radiate bright enough to light all things is, is, is huge, right? We have to grasp this understanding and think of the sun. The sun, this massive huge star that we live near, and, and it, it heats the earth, it lights the earth, it allows us to have life, it gives us so many things, and yet it was a created thing that is small in the hands of the God that created it, and we get to step into the economy of the riches of his glory. So when I say God is our provider, that means we are stepping into a new realm of provision. We're stepping outside of our, our, our abilities and what we're capable of, and we are saying, okay, God, you see my needs, and you can meet them according to the riches of your glory. Now, I don't preach a prosperity message. I don't preach a prosperity gospel. I think it's a manipulative uh, source of income for some people, and, and I could, I'll speak very strongly against the idea of a prosperity gospel, but I do know this, that we do serve a God who cares enough to care for you. We do serve a God who's big enough to provide when we need it. We serve a God who loves you. We serve a God who wants to be provision. I think it's remarkable when God works in ways that, that we don't see. I think it's remarkable when God works in ways that, that we don't grasp or understand and we go, wow, I did not see that coming. I remember, I don't remember, rather, I was too small to remember this one. I was two years old. Uh, if I remembered that, y'all would be like, what's your secret, Right? Two years old, we lived in Hallsville, Texas. Hallsville, big booming metropolis uh, of Hallsville. It's just outside of Longview, Texas. And uh, we were pastoring a small little church. I say we because my dad was the pastor, and at two years old, I was very involved. Um, 
Sometimes I just say things, right? That's just one of those. It's the anointing. It's the anointing. Uh, pastor in a small church in Hallsville, Texas. And my parents made, you'll love this one, uh, $150 a week uh, was my dad's income for the, from the church. So he did other things, odd jobs here and there. Uh, he was a, a framer. So he would work on houses at, when he could and then try to run a church when he could. And, and it came to a point when there was absolutely no money and no food. And I'm sure my dad's prayer went something along this line of, God, you called me to this crummy little town. Uh, the least you could do is help me feed my family. Uh, and that may not be verbatim. That may not be exactly how he said the prayer, but, but he just went to the Lord. He said, God, you're my provider. I trust in you. I trust in you. So they go to church. It was Sunday morning. They go back home that afternoon and they scrape together what little food. I'm not making this up. And they, they fed us what they could feed my sister and I. And my little sister wasn't born yet. And, and, and we go back to church because in those days you had Sunday night church. And, and you went back to church. And it was at 6 o'clock every Sunday at every church in America. So they go to church. The end of service. My mom comes in crying. Which is not uncommon because my mom cries a lot. And it's just one of those things. She's a crier. She comes in and she's crying. And my dad's first thought is, it's bad enough that we don't have money and food and now somebody's saying rude comments and things to my wife and bringing her down and we're already, we're giving all we have to this church as it is and somebody's gonna go and be mean to her and all this stuff. And she goes, I can't get in the car. My dad goes, you can't get in the car? She's like, I can't get in the car. It's too full. And he goes, what do you mean it's too full? It's full of groceries. There's so many groceries in the car. I can't get in the car. There's no seats. Somebody during service had come and filled it with groceries. I mean, bag after bag, the floor, the seats, everything full of food. And my mom is just weeping, going, we have food. We have We have food. And the children, my sister and I, we were able to eat. My parents were able to eat. We were able to, to, to not be worried any longer about the food because God is our provider. They didn't tell anybody. They think they know who it was now, years later. They didn't tell anybody their need. They went to the Lord. And I'm not saying that's always the recipe because I'll be honest, I'm the first to tell you, I'm the worst about admitting when I need help. And, and I want to fix it myself. I want to make it happen. I've gotten in trouble from so many people from not reaching out and asking for help because I am, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And that's not always the healthiest recipe. But I know this, that God is capable. God is able. Jesus is our provider. He's our provision. He's our provision. And sometimes it's hard to grasp that. Sometimes it's hard to go... Okay, I, I've given all that I can give. I've done all that I can do, and I still don't have enough. I still don't have enough. God is capable. And this is where I'm gonna mess you up, Scott. He is our source of prodigious love. I had to come up with a P, and so I was really stretching to find that one. I just felt the need to keep it consistent. He's our source of prodigious love. This this overwhelming love. I know that some of you maybe didn't grow up in a home with a good father. And my heart goes out to you. And I mean that sincerely, not in a 
not in a condescending way, but just in a truly, my heart breaks for you. It's easy for me to, to make the correlation between a good father and God as the good father because I grew up in a home with a good father. I can make that connection. I can make that connection. And you may not be able to, but we can look to the word of God to see the love of the father that is waiting for you, that is welcoming you. I love the parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. This young man comes to his father and says, give me my inheritance early. I'm ready to do my life. I'm ready to live. I'm ready to, to, to make a, a name for myself, right? And he says, okay. Gives it to him and sends him on his way. And through a series of horrible events and poor choices, he finds himself eating with pigs and going, how did I get here? How did I get here? And he has that realization of even the servants in my father's home eat better than this. And he goes, I'm just going to go back and say, let me, let me just work for you so I can at least eat decent food. And I love the statement when he comes running home. He comes, he's coming home. You talk about humbled and broken. You can talk about down and out, broken and dirty. And he gets to that place of humility and says, oh God, Father, I need you. And instead of coming, instead of the Bible saying that, that Jesus then says, he saw, the Father saw him coming and he turned his back and walked away and said to himself, he's dead to me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. In fact, it, it says one of the most profound statements. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What does that show me? What does that reveal to us? That he, one, was watching. He was waiting. He was looking. He was not just going, hopefully one day they come back and I get to see them again. No, that meant he was taking time constantly, continuously, and looking and saying, I am waiting for my son to come home. I am watching for my son to come home. And when he saw him, he doesn't just stand there and wait for him. And the Bible says that, that, that Jesus telling the story, he says he ran to him. He ran to him. And he throws his arms around him and he kissed him. And I love that the, the story continues, that, that he didn't just say, hey, welcome home, son, and, and slapped him on the back, hugged him, and gave him his room back. No, no, no. He, he brings him home, and he throws a coat on him, puts a ring on him, saying, you are mine. You are mine. I seal you with this ring. And I say, you are mine. And they throw this feast, and they celebrate the return of the prodigal. See, Jesus is our source of prodigious love. He's our source of love. He is a good father. He is everlasting, which means that there is no end to his reign as our king. There is no end to his reign as our source. There's not gonna come a day when it is shut down. There's not gonna come a day when it is over. There's not gonna come a day when all of a sudden he goes, well, that's it, thanks for coming, have a great day. It doesn't work that way because there is no end. He is everlasting. He is everlasting. And today I know that there are people 
in this room that are in need of a Jesus that is our source. Aren't we all in need of a Jesus that is our source? Some of us need protection. Some of us need to say, okay, God, I feel under attack. I feel under attack. I need you to surround me from the front and from behind and protect me. Some of you are saying, God, I need you to be my provider. I need you to be my source. And God, I just need your love. I want to run back to you with your arms open wide and and just, just in gripping love. I'm going to invite the worship team. As they come, as they make their way right now, I just, my heart is, is at a place where I go, God, I, I know you want to speak. I know you want to move. I know you want to do something. I know you're, I know you're saying something. And you may be in this room right now going, man, I am in a place where I need Jesus, the everlasting father. I need Jesus, the protection, the provider. I need his love, whatever that may be. I tell you this, that he wants to give it. I mentioned earlier that my, my father likes to provide. He likes to give. One of the things that I, I, I find so so interesting about that is that now, anytime we do anything, whatever it is, he's like, I've, I've got it. Let me pay for it. Let me pay for it. Let me pay for it. And it's not a chore, right? It's not this, this struggle for him where he's going, oh, they're expecting it from me. He genuinely loves doing it. It is a joy for him to be able to say, hey, I can pay for this. Because in his mind, he goes, there have been moments when I couldn't provide groceries for you guys. There have been moments when, when we were struggling to keep the gas bill on, to keep heat in the house. There were moments in our lives where, where we didn't have two nickels to rub together. And now I'm, I, I want to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to provide for you still. See, God doesn't, doesn't want to reluctantly give protection or re- he doesn't reluctantly provide. He doesn't reluctantly pour out his love. No, no, no. He finds joy and pleasure in giving to his children. He finds joy in giving to his children. Can I tell you that that sometimes, that, that right there is enough for me to just go, oh God, thank you. That be, in spite of me, in spite of who I am, all of my failures, all of my struggles, all of my problems, everything that I carry and walk with every day, all, the, all of that, despite, in spite of who I am, you freely give. And that is overwhelming at times. Our everlasting Father. Our everlasting Father. King of kings, Lord of lords, Father of fathers. And at the same time, it's a challenge as a father to say, help me to live that way. Help me to be that father my children need to see that father we love you and we thank you God for this morning we thank you for your word 
We thank you for your word, oh God, that you would speak to us, that you would reveal to us your truths, God, that you would reveal to us who you are. Uh, during this Christmas season, as, as, we, as we begin to anticipate your birth and the celebration of your birth, God, that, that you were sent to us, you were given to us so that we could have eternal life, so that we could find hope in Jesus. God, without the manger, we don't have the cross. Without the manger, we don't have the resurrection. Without the manger, we don't have freedom in Christ. Lord, without the manger, we don't have salvation. So Father, we honor your birth. We honor it because of what it led to, because of the salvation we have, because of the freedom we can walk in. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.